a little Ohio Mysteries business before we get started tonight. I am happy to announce that we have launched a phone number if you'd like to call and leave us a feedback on our episode, suggest another mystery, or just in general, tell us what a great job we are doing. It is 234-738-0966. Again, that is 234-738-0966. We are looking forward to hearing from you. And now, on with the show. Listeners, and welcome to Ohio Mysteries. This is our 10-minute mystery edition, a little slice of intrigue in the middle of your week. I'm your co-host, Steve Yoder, and with me is our award-winning journalist, Paula Schleiss. Hi, everyone. So, Steve, who invented the telephone? This is easy. Alexander Graham Bell. Yeah, that's the answer to the trivia question, all right. It is true that Bell was awarded the patent for the telephone and proclaimed the winner in a very competitive race to invent it. But what if I told you that since the very day Bell received a patent, it has been hotly contested, with some people convinced that he actually stole the idea from an Ohio man. And over the past century, as more researchers and books have explored the debate, membership in Team Elijah Gray has grown, which would be really cool, because Ohio is also the birthplace of Thomas Edison, so the Buckeye State may have actually birthed the men who gave the world everything from the light bulb to motion pictures to record players to the first devices that allowed us to call each other. So, first, who the heck is Elijah Gray? He may have been mentioned in your Ohio history school book back in the day. He was well known in his lifetime. But even so, you've probably forgotten all about him. So let me reintroduce you. Elijah Gray was born August the 2nd, 1835 in Barnesville, Ohio. Barnesville was a speck of a town in Belmont County, just a few dozen families back then, across the Ohio River from Wheeling, West Virginia. His parents, David Gray and Christiana Edgerton, were Quakers. And not surprisingly, Given the era and the location, Elijah was raised on a farm. His father died when he was young, and his mother was pretty ill. So at the age of 12, he became the family's primary breadwinner and left school to become an apprentice to a blacksmith. But Elijah's dreams lay in a very different direction. He was always interested in the phenomena of nature and read all the books he could get his hands on. And as he grew older, he became particularly obsessed with the way mechanical things worked. So at the age of 22, he finished his high school education and was accepted into Oberlin College in Lorain County to study engineering. 
While he was there, he worked as a carpenter to support himself. Like Elijah, Oberlin was ahead of its time. The year Elijah was born, 1835, the school started admitting black students. Two years after that, in 1837, they started accepting women. So it was a perfect place for someone who wanted no limits to their imagination. Now, the school let him experiment with all kinds of electrical devices. He built laboratory equipment for the school science department. They even had him teaching electricity and science there. All this, and he never even finished getting his degree. Oberlin is also where he met and married his wife, Delia Shepard, in 1861. Four years later, in 1865, Elijah collected the first of more than 70 patents he would acquire in his lifetime. This first one was for a telegraph relay system that was soon adopted by a little company you might have heard of, the Western Union Telegraph Company. And four years after that, he and his partner, Enos Barton, founded Gray and Barton Company in Cleveland to supply the telegraph industry. That company moved to Chicago and caught the attention of those giant industrialists, J.P. Morgan and the Vanderbilts. And a third of that country was purchased by them and spun off to become Western Electric Manufacturing Company. Western Union, Western Electric, Elijah Gray had his thumb in some very famous companies. Elijah stayed on with Western Electric to work on some inventions for them for a couple of years. But in 1874, at the ripe age of 39, he retired so he could work on independent research and development. Now, even though he clearly made some money from that company, the business of invention and the patent process was expensive. And for this, Elijah Gray had a benefactor. His financial backer was a Philadelphia dentist named Samuel White. White told Elijah that he expected him to work on things that were profitable. Make more improvements to the telegraph, he said. That's where the money is. White was stressing this because for the past couple of years... Elijah had been dabbling with ways to transmit the human voice using electricity. Elijah wasn't the only one. There was a small but highly competitive field of inventors trying to work that one out, including Alexander Graham Bell. While the winner of this race to the telephone stood to make a lot of money, not to mention history, the losers in this race would just be left with a lot of wasted time and probably a lot of debt. And Elijah's financial backer didn't want that. So White made it clear that Elijah needed to turn his attention away from the telephone. And Elijah said, okay. But he kept working on the telephone in secret anyway. And in February of 1876, he was ready to apply for his patent. Gray instructed his lawyer, William Baldwin, to prepare what was called a caveat. It was a provisional patent application with drawings and a description, but without a request for examination. It was a way to reserve your place in line, get that drawing in first, 
but with the promise that the full patent application was coming. So first thing, Monday morning, February 14, 1876, Elijah's attorney submitted it to the U.S. Patent Office, making Elijah Gray the first to declare his idea for transmitting voice sounds using a liquid transmitter. I'm not going to get into the science of it. Just know that the unique thing about Elijah's idea was that it used water as part of the process. But incredibly and suspiciously, at noon that very same day, who shows up at the U.S. Patent Clerk's office? But Alexander Graham Bell's own patent attorney, just two hours later. And he submitted a full patent application for the very same design. Well, that was weird. You see, Alexander Bell's patent attorney, he had been sitting on a patent application for Bell's telephone for quite a while because Bell had applied for a patent in Britain. And at the time, Britain was like, if we're not the first to get the discovery, we're not going to give you a patent. So they were sitting on it for that reason. Bell himself was in Boston when Elijah Gray's attorney went into the patent office that morning. So why was Alexander Bell's attorney now showing up at the patent office with the application he had been sitting on? And that wasn't the only suspicious thing, because on that application was a handwritten edition that somebody had just jotted down, seven sentences that described a liquid transmitter, the very same design that was in Elijah Gray's caveat. When Bell's attorney handed the application to the clerk, he insisted it be given to the examiner immediately, the examiner being the guy responsible for awarding the patent. And five days later, on February 19, the patent examiner, remember this name, Zenas Fisk Wilbur, there's a great 19th century name for you, Wilbur realized he had a problem, and so he put everything on hold, he said, for 90 days while he tried to figure out who to give the patent to. Well, during this time, Alexander Graham Bell himself comes to Washington, D.C., and on February 26, Wilbur asks him, prove that you were the first to come up with the liquid transmitter idea. So Bell pointed to an application he filed a year earlier where he was using mercury in a circuit breaker. Well, that had nothing to do with using mercury in a telephone, but it was good enough for Wilbur the examinator. He didn't even wait the full 90 days for Elijah Gray to make his counter argument. On March 7, 1876, the examiner declared Bell the winner and granted him a master telephone patent even though history has shown Mercury would never have worked in a telephone transmitter. So Bell went back to Boston, and on March 9, two days after receiving his patent, he drew a diagram in his lab notebook showing a water transmitter. This is important because history has shown it is the first time Bell actually ever drew the item for which he received a patent. And it came three weeks after Elijah Gray had drawn that same design for his caveat. 
It was the day after Bell etched that design into his notebook that he went ahead and tested it, and it worked. It successfully transmitted the words that were recorded for history. Mr. Watson, come here. I want to see you. Now, Bell's supporters will argue eh, he had used liquid transmitters extensively for three years and multiple telegraph and other experiments. He had even been given a patent for a primitive fax machine that used liquid transmitters. Those on team Elijah Gray, however, said those patents were not for the telephone. And Elijah was the first to identify liquid transmitters for the telephone. Elijah was not going down without a fight. One year after being denied his caveat, he went back to the U.S. Patent Office and tried to submit a full patent application for the same thing had been denied. The Patent Office acknowledged, and this is very interesting, they said, while Gray was undoubtedly the first to conceive of and disclose the invention, as in his caveat of February 14, 1876, his failure to take any action amounting to completion until others had demonstrated the utility of the invention deprives him of the right to have it considered. Basically, because Bell took his idea and went back and got it to work, they were going to overlook the fact that it was Elijah's design to begin with and that he had submitted it first. So there was still the question of how in the heck did Bell's attorney show up at the patent office two hours after Elijah Gray's attorney submitted his caveat with that handwritten edition describing the liquid transmitter. That just seemed to be an awfully big coincidence. Well, history thinks it has an answer to that. Wilbur, the patent examiner who awarded the patent to Bell, although Elijah had beat him to the office, admitted he'd been bribed. Get this. In an affidavit, in 1886, while the litigation over this patent was going on, Wilbur testified that he was an alcoholic and deeply in debt to Bell's attorney, Marcellus Bailey. Bailey and the examiner Wilbur were longtime friends and Civil War Army buddies. Wilbur admitted that against patent office rules, he showed Bailey Elisha Gray's application and that he also told his superiors that Bell's patent had arrived first when it had not. Afterward, he said, Bell paid him a visit at his office and gave him a $100 bill. Well, Alexander Graham Bell flat out denied giving Wilbur any money. But in a letter to Elijah Gray years later, Bell did admit that he learned some of the technical details of Gray's caveat from Wilbur, the patent examiner. But even that confession by Wilbur didn't solve this mystery to everyone's satisfaction because Wilbur changed his mind. He gave another affidavit that didn't describe any of these actions. And later, when asked why his story changed, he said he was drunk, depressed, and duped into signing that affidavit confessing to a bribe 
by attorneys for the Pan Electric Company. The Pan Electric Company, it turns out, was trying to steal the Bell patents. And they were even later found out to have bribed the U.S. Attorney General and some congressmen. So now, even Wilbur's confession wasn't a slam dunk. And here's the historic result of that confusion. Even today, you will find historians writing about this topic and plainly stating Bell got to the patent office first without even an explanation of this other option. Now, I mentioned that the guys racing to invent the telephone were highly competitive. I found a little side note that was kind of interesting because it turns out Bell had long been afraid Elisha Gray was trying to steal from him. There was a letter Bell had written to another inventor in 1875 in which he told that inventor, don't let Gray know anything about your work. And Bell's secretary, Catherine McKenzie, she gave an interview later in life, and she recalled that Bell had once told her, I had always entertained ungenerous thoughts of Mr. Gray and believed him capable of spying upon me. Anyway, Elijah may have lost the telephone battle, and it was Alexander Graham Bell whose name was preserved in the history books. But the boy from Barnesville, Ohio, went on to invent more things that were revolutionary for their time. He invented a device that could transmit handwriting through the telegraph system. Basically, a pioneer fax machine that led to the creation of the Xerox Corporation. He also conceived of a primitive closed-circuit television system that he called the Telephote. It allowed pictures to be transmitted to a distant station. And this seems kind of off the wall, but he's also considered the father of the modern music synthesizer. He developed a harmonic telegraph that used vibrating reeds. And in 1877, is credited with having organized the first concert of electronic music. In 1880, Gray returned to Ohio. He was named Professor of Dynamic Electricity at Oberlin College and taught with distinction. Then in 1899, he moved to Boston, where he developed an underwater signaling device that could transmit messages to ships. The device was successfully tested on December 31, 1900, and three weeks later, Elijah Gray died of a heart attack. Discovered among his belongings was a note indicating a lingering disappointment concerning the telephone. It read, in part, The history of the telephone will never be fully written. It is partly hidden away and partly lying on the hearts and consciences of a few whose lips are sealed, some in death, and others by a golden clasp whose grip is even tighter. Steve, what do you think? Have I, have I uh, convinced you to switch over to Team Elijah Gray? Yes, absolutely. Uh, it just, it's crazy that all that stuff was going on even back then in Washington, D.C., where you got people, you know, paying other people off. It's just fascinating. I hear these kinds of stories involving inventors all the time. It was just cutthroat. That's it for our midweek 10-minute mystery. We'll see you here Sunday for our next regular full-size Ohio mystery episode. In the meantime, enjoy the rest of your week. And may all of your mysteries have happy endings. Ohio Mysteries is produced by Stephen Yoder and Paula Schleiss.
Special thanks to our Patreon and PayPal supporters. Thank you, Audionautics, Daniel Birch, and Adderin for the music. And of course, to all of you who support our show by listening and telling friends and family about us. You can find us on Twitter at Mysteries Ohio. You can find us on Facebook by just searching for Ohio Mysteries. We are also on Instagram at Ohio Mysteries. It is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.